Yellow Chow Chow, the All Jello Show. If you even think of hanging up or leaving the room for a scotch, we will murder you. Now listen, Great Creeperson and the Phantom Eric and Chris want to take you on a ride through dark alleys and bright rooms, long stairways, and backstage at the art gallery. If you want to live, you'll don your black gloves and join them for the ride. Chow Chow Jerk. <laughs> Welcome to Chow Chow, the All Jello Show, where we are finally at uh, the top three of the listener whatevers, and this is episode 48, right? 48? Sure. Oh. Episode is older than I am. <laughs> we finally did yourself it. That. We finally did an episode older than Chris. So, episode 48, where we're going to discuss Dario Argento Classic, Unsane. Also known as Tenebrae, to everyone other than the U.S. Oh, I better and, just leave oh, them. Yeah. Well, right, I'm, ex- so. I'm excited because, if I remember correctly from our last episode, um, yeah, I've got uh, New York Giants... Black Scorpion, you guys can suck it. Um, But you know what else? I didn't finish my sentence. Oh, shit. This is where we start cutting each other off and getting cranky. This isn't where where we start. We've started. Yeah, we've started. Okay. No, I I was going to say, I was going to say Creep Creeperson, who is affiliated with Poop for some reason. Yeah. Um,. I'm excited because last episode we talked about that Eric was going to watch Tenebrae for the very first time ever in his whole life. Oh my god. So um, I'm excited to get his... I mean, I remember back in the single-digit episodes where uh, we did the play-by-plays, and certainly we're not going to do that. and We haven't done that in a while, but I, I'm, I would love to hear kind of a of a, a start to finish kind of experience summary from Eric as we get into this like because I've seen the movie 8000 times and I think creep you've probably seen it that many times as well yeah I, I need a beat sheet from Eric right now I should probably go watch it then <laughs> I forgot to watch it what's a beat sheet is that a wrestling thing do I want to know no, it's uh, just like a movie thing like what happens every Couple minutes. Oh, okay. <clears throat> How did you feel every couple minutes while watching <laughs> Benembre? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some beat sheets going on watching this movie uh, with myself. 
alone. Um, are we are we getting into it? Are we just doing it? Oh, okay. Tenebrae? I think yeah. so. We don't have any other announcements, right? I mean, this is uh, episode 48. Um, next episode will be um, Strange Vice. Yeah. And um, the last, uh, number 50, will be the big Deep Red episode. So. Sweet. Okay. Um, I don't have very much to report from my side of the world. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> The world in general is kind of going to hell, but that's what we're here for—some little yeah. escapism. Yeah, true enough. So, yeah, I mean, you're referring to Charlie Sheen, right? Referring to Charlie Sheen, referring to the Packers losing to the Lions. It's just oh. listen to this guy. Yeah, it's just rough out there. Yeah, Seth Rollins ruining his knee. Roman Reigns having to enter a tournament that he has no business being in. <laughs> okay. But whatever. Um, I, thought, I thought we got all this out. Did yeah, we got Trying to box a giant Amazonian gorilla <laughs> woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have too much of a, a beat. I, I was trying to write things down as I was watching it, um, kind of doing some of the plot point stuff. Um, but some of the things that I did kind of just do like a bullet point thoughts. As I was going along with it, um, initially I thought that the author was kind of an asshole uh, for riding his bike in the middle of the interstate. <laughs> That's kind of what it looked like. He was. Going underneath he, was. He, he totally was. I watched that again, and I'm like, "There's, that's ridiculous. He's riding really in, like, you know, okay, so this was actually filmed, that part of it was filmed in the U.S. And he's yeah. riding in the middle of a four-lane fucking highway on yeah. his 10-speed. So right on away, his, I didn't on like his him. way to the airport. Right away, I didn't like him. Oh my god, it was unbelievable. It's Italian oh. sensibilities, man. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, once I figured out he was kind of a trashy horror novel writer, he kind of won favor with me again. And um, I was kind of getting like shades of misery almost. That's one of my favorite horror movies. Just one of my favorite movies in general, I'll say. Um, I just like that that movie a lot. This one. Um, the writer, you know, he's he likes to talk about his his own stuff a lot and and how great it is and it's not sexist all this stuff, but even though it truly is. But yeah, you really just get the sense that it's a different world. I mean, he leaves his bag unattended in the airport. Yeah, um, definitely. Girls will just give give out their addresses willy nilly to strangers. They don't really care. Where do you live? Yeah, <laughs> just come. Where find do you me. live? You can come by like whenever, uh huh, anytime. Well, well, let's let's kind of start at the beginning. I think, you know, we're treating Tenebrae uh, as a special, you know, feature here because you know we're doing this. I don't want to call them top three, but we had asked the listeners, the listeners, the listeners and the viewers and the people on our Facebook group to pick the three that they wanted us to to cover, and this one fell at the third, the number three spot. Um, and Tenebrae is, uh, obviously we're talking about a Dario, Dario Argento film. It's from 1982. So right away it's different because it's not from the heyday of the Giallo, uh, movement. Um, but there is a lot in, to, to talk about and to think about with this film that goes beyond just 
uh, is it a good giallo? Is it does it have a good story? Is it an effective movie? Because um, I think this is probably. I mean, you could probably argue that Suspiria and Inferno have a lot of imagery and symbolism going on, um, but this one is has got a lot of. Um, you know, a, a subtext and a lot of symbolism and imagery happening, and it's not as obvious, and it's not as uh, it doesn't jump out at you as much as uh, the colorful, um, you know, a supernatural horror of um, Suspiria and Inferno. This one's a little bit more subtle, but Tenebrae, yeah. um, Tenebrae is basically, a, I mean, it is a giallo. So you have Dario Argento who did nothing but make giallo films uh, with the exception of uh, Five Days in Milan, which came, I think, after Four Flies on Grey Velvet and before Deep Red, but I could be wrong about that. Um, And so he made like three giallo in a row, took a break, and then made Deep Red, which was his fourth giallo, then kind of took a left turn and did Suspiria and Inferno and then came back to uh, the giallo genre in 1982 when the style of filmmaking and the the trends were completely different and uh i you know i make you know no um excuses for the fact that i think this is one of the best jolly uh ever made and what's interesting about it is that it's not from the time period that we know as classic uh a classic period but basically, um, it's a very interesting story about a horror fiction writer who comes to Italy to promote his book. And when he arrives in Rome, at the same time, there's someone killing um, women with a, a razor blade and using the pages from his latest book uh, as kind of a calling card. Um, you know, the first victim has the pages of the book shoved into her mouth as she's being murdered. Um, and so as he, when he arrives in Rome, uh, when he finally gets to his hotel, he's immediately confronted by the police and they want to know what he knows. And he's like, well, I just got here. I mean, I don't know anything. And so the, the story really kicks off quickly. It, It goes into its investigative mode. Um, uh, right off the bat, there's no like real buildup of anything. But basically, again, you have this uh, character, Peter Neal, who's the American writer. Um, we have a series of murders, and um, we have a whole bunch of suspects. And there's a lot of like um, really well done camera work that kind of tries to indict or um, point the guilt in one direction or another direction or lead you to be suspicious of this person or that person and um but the film uh is as far as the storyline goes that's pretty much it i mean you're you're kind of following along and seeing what's happening and and the people that are getting killed um are women um, and really, there's only two murders that can be attributed to the, the motive behind the killer in the beginning. The third murder is basically, uh, oh, uh, you know, you have a, a, a female victim who just happens to stumble upon the killer's home and sees all the evidence. Well, there's two uh, victims in the second killer. Right, right. No, that's true. So the the, the idea here is that the, the women are, are dirty. They're... Um, they're sexual perverts, 
and they're being murdered kind of as a as a way of you know the killer trying to eliminate um what is it the the moral you know uh to eliminate per, uh, corruption or perversion or something of that sort so um and basically there really isn't much else to describe as from from a synopsis point of view without getting into the movie but one well, of the go, um, go ahead sorry I was just gonna say, <clears throat> at this point though, the the story is that Peter Neal is gonna try to solve the case because he's a mystery writer, horror writer, right. and if he could solve the case, then that would make great publicity for him or whatever. Right, right, exactly. That's a good point. I didn't even remember that because I was I'm so hung up on the second half of the film. Yeah. The fact that I, I, it's almost like I, you forget that he initially was the amateur detective once you get to the end of the film. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the detective and the detective's um, assistant, they're kind of working on the case, but he's also working on it separately, which is classic Jalo. Um, and, you know, he's trying to think like, could this be somebody I know? Um, you know, why? You know, I've I've been brought into this. You know, a lot of the times, the reason why the amateur detective gets involved in trying to solve the case is either because um, they're being threatened by the killer themselves, or because they're being kind of um, it, it, the the suspicion is around them that they might be the killer, and so they have to try and figure out who the killer is so that they can clear their name. And in this case, Peter Neal isn't doing either of those two things. He's just for the fun of it, saying, you know, how cool would it be if the writer got it and figured it out before the cops did. So, um, one thing I think is uh, really important to talk about with the film. Uh, not necessarily right off the bat, but eventually, is the way that the film looks. And again, you know, we've got a, a major difference between 1973 and 1982 as far as the, the style. If you compare, you know, Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Four Flies on Grey Velvet, the way that these films look compared to the way Tenebrae looks, it's, it's night and day. Um, but Argento was quoted as saying that he wanted this film to look like it was taking place in the future, in this in this futuristic setting in Rome where it, he wasn't specific enough to to give a backstory. But basically, the su the, the the supposition was some sort of thing happened. Maybe it was. Um, uh, some sort of a, a bomb went off or some sort of war happened and there was a lot less people uh, in Rome and everything's more futuristic and everybody has more room to move around. And um, he, f he basically designed and filmed uh, the, the movie with these <clears throat> ideas in mind. And that's why it looks and feels the way it does. It's, it's, it, it's a film about murders and mystery and it, there's almost never any darkness in the film, which is interesting because the word tenebrae means shadow. So, again, um, coming back to what I started out saying, which is there's a lot of stuff going on in this film that you can use as, um, you know, to, for critical analysis that's way beyond um, what, you know, your normal run-of-the-mill uh, giallo uh, has to offer and people have taken a lot of time to talk about Tenebrae and what's going on in Tenebrae and and the, the symbolism and and uh, all of the themes that are that are being used here but um, we can get into that um, you know, well going back to what you said though um, I watched a uh, 
a documentary a long time ago. I don't remember what movie it was on, but um, it might have been on the Tenebrae uh, DVD. But they were saying that um, another aesthetic he was going for on this was he wanted everything to look like ice. Mm. Like he wanted everything just like really white and cold and right. um, to give it like a completely different look than anything he's ever done. And that <clears throat> everything has like really straight lines, like whether it's the architecture of the buildings layered like squares or whatever, or Kinda the paint on that the head with the panning over the roof of that building. Yeah, for real. For two minutes. And it's just, it's crazy because like when you know that and then you watch the movie, you realize that so much time went into making sure every single location was perfect, you know? And because the the movie looks kind of like an episode of Murder, She Wrote, Mm -hmm. it's hard to, like, pull those things out when you watch it for the first time. Like, we've been watching a ton of Hunter lately. Oh, yeah, I remember that show. Oh, dude, it's so good. Like, watching it now, you're like going, I cannot believe this was on TV. It's just so over the top and death and whatever. But um, it's just like, when you watch Hunter, you like watch Tenebrae, and it's roughly the same period, and so much stuff makes sense. Like, it just seems like an extension of that, you know? It's just, it's really, really weird. Unfortunately, I think Tenebrae gets kind of a bad rap because people want to see Suspiria Part 2 or, you know, not a continuation of the story, but they want to see those same kind of color palettes. And Because um, I think you got the same cinematographer for this movie that was on Suspiria, if I'm not mistaken. But it's like people are really let down by the, the brightness of this film and perhaps the straight lines and, you know, it just seems very cold and isolated. And I actually might feel that way more about Deep Red than this movie, but um, not the not the lightness or anything, but just how open that area seemed in, yeah. in that film. It seemed yeah. like a bomb had gone off. But mm-hmm. here it was was something I really I did. You know, I was kind of going starting into the the plot a little a little bit of my thoughts and stuff. But overall, like my first um, impressions visually of the film were that it yeah it was very bright. Um, and it didn't, you know, they were in Italy, but you kind of had to remind yourself of that a couple times because it didn't have that same sort of feel as when, you know, early 70s, you're in Italy with Fiat's driving everywhere and um, lots of people yeah. crammed in the open areas. Totally. I mean, you know, if it was a if it was a Jolly or Jalo from 1970, whatever, you'd get lots of shots of these piazzas and some of this classical architecture and there's none of that in this film like they really you know Argento did uh, probably went out of his way to make the film look like it, it could have taken place anywhere um, you know and and you know you've got a lot of actors um, that looks like some of the, the you, it looks like you have a few at least a few actors that are speaking English even though they're dubbed so that kind of gives it more of a a contemporary feel and not so much of a of a international feel at least for the american audience i guess so yeah and even like the buildings are boarded up and there's those big ugly fences everywhere that the hobos hide behind <laughs> bust out of and it's just, yeah. it's just a different different realm 
This is in Rome, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be Rome, yeah. Okay. okay. Roma. Yeah. Roma. And, uh, yeah. And then hanging out in those in the skyscraper motel or whatever Peter Neal's in, that, that felt very kind of 80s. Like, just way up there, and you could see the big windows overlooking the city. The carpet in the hallway was sick, and they only showed it for a half a second. <laughs> so mad. So, yeah, it's just striking striking differences in this film, even though, um, like Chris said, it was kind of one of the better, um, just getting into the mystery. You know, you start with the black gloves, so you know it's going to be a, a jello as he's reading the book and then throwing it in the fire, and you get that great soundtrack, that hit of the soundtrack, and you kind of, it's kind of a, a great start, I think, to this film, but I, I, you said, you know, you focus sometimes more on the end of it, and I did feel like it was almost like two films, yeah. sometimes maybe even three, um, just between the different plot points and then, you know, the, the backstory or the flashbacks that he had of the girl in the white dress with the red shoes. Yeah. It's like, who... Who is this now? Is this going to be Peter Neal, or is this going to be, you know, the the newscaster or the anchor, or is it going to be someone totally different? And see, that's the that. funny thing about this movie too, because like when you watch this movie, as soon as you see him talking to the guy from the news station or the TV station, you're like, he did it. Uh huh. Like that guy is like so like. It's like almost red herringish. It's so blatantly obvious that he's him. You know. Right. What I mean? But the um, great thing is, it's like they don't even care. But the the great thing about this film is that Argento knew that. Okay, you know, one of the techniques in making these films is that you identify somebody as a red herring. And it's obvious that they're really not the killer because you've spent so much time making everyone think that they are the killer. And in this particular case, it was half true and not half true. And so Argento kind of spun it around a different way again, you know, because again, you're talking about this, you know, if if you look at Argento's track record, he's basically accredited with starting the, the movement and getting it, you know, rising it, getting getting it uh, up to a popular uh, level with Bird and the films that came after it, um, and then Deep Red kind of challenged what was done before. It. And now you've got, you know, uh, ten years later almost, you know, it's it, it's up to Argento to try and figure out how to do it a little differently again. And at the same time, you know, uh, he's adding his own signature uh, style to it with the visuals. But also with some of the story points as well, like you guys are saying here, like, you know, Cristiano Berti is identified as the killer um, kind of by suspicion because he takes such an interest in Peter Neal and his book and he has such a, um, a very emotional response to uh, the, the subject matter of the book and Peter Neal's like, did you really want to get this heavy on an afternoon show? And he's like, well, maybe not, but I'm just personally really interested. Um, but at the same time, so, so, you know, you're watching this going, well, of course that's him. And then, you know, that thing that Argento does, and, you know, I think we've, we've discussed whether or not everybody likes this <laughs> in our group. Um, the, I saw something, but I don't know if I really saw what I saw thing that Argento <laughs> likes to do. And, you know, he did it with Bird 
and he did it well. He he didn't really have to do it with Cat and Nine Tails because you had one of the amateur detectives who was blind, so it was like I didn't see anything. Yeah. Um, and then in Four Flies, it was kind of sort of there, but then in Deep Red, it was definitely there again with um, with what with what happened with Mark when he went up into the room after Helga gets killed. Um, and then you know Argento does that in all of his films. He did it with Suspiria too, where. Um, Susie gets to the to the um, to the ballet school, and the girl comes out in the rain, and she says something, and I don't know what exactly what she says, something about the iris. So what I thought was really cool about this one was um, it happened right in the middle. It happened right when we say that this movie, which is actually two separate films almost, kind of when it splits in half, you have that scene where Peter Neal and Johnny go to. Uh, spy on Cristiano Berti and this axe murdering scene happens and then Johnny is replaying all this stuff in his mind and I saw something but it wasn't really what I think I saw and I thought it was cool that Argento threw that in again but he didn't throw it in in the beginning for the main character to kind of obsess over throughout the whole film it was like you have the secondary character who obsesses over it, but only for a little while, and once he figures out what really happened, he gets killed right away. So, um, I, I really, you know, I, I recognize when I watched this for the very first time a long time ago, I recognized that structure already because I had already seen Suspiria and I had already seen Bird, and I'm like, oh, he's doing this thing again with the I saw something, but maybe I didn't. But, um, did, I mean, did you guys think that that was more effective than, um, what he did in some of the... I, I think the most effective one is in Deep Red, and we'll talk about that in a couple episodes, but um, did you think this one worked, or did it just not... It, was it too far-fetched? Was it like, oh, there was no way that, you know, that Johnny was ever going to really get that confused about what he saw? I think having seen Deep Red kind of helped me get a better... Um, put this in more of a relative sense... And if if I hadn't seen that, if I had you know hadn't paid attention to the other Argento movies, that I might not have enjoyed it that much. It is it does seem like it's kind of blatant in this one um, when they he starts talking to the the inspector and he's t- telling him, you know, sometimes the truth. Oh, what was the line? Something is about that. Yeah. Whatever. When you are, eliminated the impossible, whatever. It means. <clears throat> It's the truth, yeah. And so that kind of ties into the whole, you know, what did you see? Was that real type of thing? You know, and I don't know. Maybe this isn't the same thing, but it, it does. I'm one of those people that doesn't really like like it um, when, you know, they, they play out, oh, this killer is too obvious, so it must not be him. And then it ends up being him, so you feel like, I guess they're right, but then there's actually two killers, so you're only like half right. This was the razor blade guy, not the axe guy. And it's right. Like, so then it kind of feels like you were cheated a little bit out of your suspicion. You have to start all over again. But um, so I don't know if that's kind of similar to the discussion enough. But that's like something that kind of put put me off on this one. Um, <clears throat> as far as um the Johnny thing, um, I thought it was it it worked. It was kind of funny that. He could hear through the glass, <laughs> right. uh, the whispers. But um, I just—it's it, one of his tropes about seeing things through glass. 
And yeah. I don't know if that's like something or if that's just like there's fucking windows everywhere and that's how we see shit. But like, it's just like Bird. It's just like Peter seeing um, his ex from the window. She's driving away, looking through the windows. Like everything's always so overly voyeuristic with right. him. And um, so that's just something and the amount of glass breaking in this is just great but yeah. um i don't know well there, um, there's a there's a big um there's a big section on the wikipedia page for the film where they talk about and i think it's maitland mcdonough or maybe it's one of the other um critics argento critics talking about how the film um deals with doubles and mirrors a lot um, the fact that, you know, Cristiano Berti and Peter Neal are kind of mirrors of each other, but also Peter Neal and the detective are mirrors of each other, where Peter is the amateur detective and the professional writer, and the detective is the professional one, but he also likes horror mystery novels, and he can never figure out who the killer is, even though he's the detective. Um, and apparently there's a lot of that that's done very subtly, throughout the film yeah. like um you know different things appear on the screen in doubles like you know um random groups of people fighting on the street there's two different scenes of that happening or um you know a hand gets caught in a slamming door there's two scenes of that i think there's a bunch of examples on the tenebrae uh wikipedia page but um you know the whole idea of um art uh, as as uh, that plays a role specifically in um, what happens in these films or in this particular film like um, you know this the sculpture at the very end uh, and how that plays into the way that the film ends but I think there there was something in the film that I always paid attention to and always was trying to figure out what the hell was going on and it was only recently that you know, I had a little bit of insight onto it, but there's a scene where um, I think it's the scene is Peter is already out somewhere doing something, and I think what's what's the is it Anne? Anne is the secretary, so yeah. Anne gets a call from Jane, who says something about I really want to apologize, I'm going to kill myself or something like that, and Anne hangs up the phone and leaves, and then. The camera stays inside the room and it's very dark and there's organ music playing and all of a sudden they, they show this very shiny pointy thing and the light hits it and when the light hits it this really dark or uh, this really deep organ note just rings out like Wah! and the, the light reflects off this this mirror type sculpture thing and the very first thousand times I watched this film I thought it was a knife. And I thought yeah, that yeah. there was a killer sitting in the room with the knife who had been waiting for Anne to leave. But um, it turns out that most people think that it's just a sculpture and it has no bearing on anything other than the fact that it's foreshadowing this pointy sculpture that's going to come into play later in the film. And other people have mentioned that this that spot where the... Um, where this little scene happens is the switch between the two killers and the switch between the two um, versions of the film. 
So, um, but I've only I've only really come to understand that recently. And for for as long as I can remember watching the film, I thought it was the killer sitting in the room with a knife. So, but didn't um, John Saxon already get killed? I don't think he had at that point, did he? He, he might have. You might be right. Yeah. Well, it, the chick called. That was after she saw his body at the thing, right? Yeah, it would have had to have been after it was revealed that John Saxon was having an affair with Jane, which I don't think happened quite yet. Because we still think Jane is kind of this apologetic, just crazy ex-lover. But I thought she called to say, I'm sorry, help me from killing myself. Once she saw that John Saxon was killed. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. It's interesting that somebody would say that that, that scene represents the split between the two films if it happened that late in the chrono chronology. But I have to I, go back and look at that, but I do seem to remember that in that hotel room, because I remember there was a scene when I think it was either Peter or John Saxon were sitting in the like in a couch and there was like this big fan of like metal behind them, like a sculpture on, behind the couch or something. So it could be that, that same sculpture, and then maybe it was some kind of symbolism as to these people are going get, to start getting killed now. I don't know. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely that that sharp... Um, even when they... We're talking about that scene where they're panning up along the roof, playing the music. It almost looks like those are like blades, like those shingles. So I don't know if there's just like a lot of blade imagery in this film that has to do with yeah I don't know well and it it also seems like the 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 murders um, were stylized much differently between the two killers oh, I mean yeah. especially the second the, the second murder sequence with the two with the two girls and the shot with the you know the the classic iconic shot of the girl's face inside the t-shirt and then the other girl who gets killed um, and you can see her her head and her throat getting slit with the razor but then her head falls through and breaks the glass and it's like when you watch when I watched that um, it was hard to tell what side of the reflection she was on and clearly that was done on purpose and then when her head smashes through the glass of the stair of the stairwell and you could see that she was on one side or the other side, but um, just like that whole thing where um, the first girl has already been murdered, and the second girl comes walking down the steps, and she sees the reflection. I mean, there's—if you start looking through the film, you'll see so many different mirrors and reflections and glass everywhere, like you were saying, creep. Um, and you know, just just some of the interesting like set pieces, like the killer hitting the light bulb with a razor blade, and the lights going out, and. Uh, of course, the the big um, Luma Crane shot that was a, you know everybody made a big deal out of it. Um, I guess it was I guess it was technologically advanced for its time. I don't know. I have a feeling it was more like a thing where usually in movies when they would use a crane like that, that shot would get cut to where it's sensible. Right. This movie, they just put the whole damn shot. In the fucking movie. Well, the, from the from the documentary that I saw, the thing that they were all very proud of themselves about was the fact that they had attached a camera to a gyroscope, and so the gyroscope was on the crane, 
And so instead of just having the camera pointing in one direction and going up or going left or right, when it got to the point where it was overhead, the gyroscope allowed it to tilt and point down. And then yeah. it went it went to the other side of the building and it, and it went this way. And, you know, so you had that one continuous shot of moving from one side of the building where the one girl is looking out the window uh, to the other side where the killer's hands are starting to cut on the uh, on the shutters to try and get in. Um, but again, you know, the argument is, was that necessary? Uh, what did it add to the film? Was it just for the sake of, you know, to do something cool with the camera? Um, yeah, it was. If it wasn't for the score, it would have been a lot less bearable. I could sit and listen to that thing. Right. Yeah. Just on yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I would, I would imagine that they probably thought, you know, well, we're going to have to put some music, some yeah. really good music behind this because otherwise it's, you know. Yeah, because there's parts where it just gets super close to the roof, and so it almost seems like, all right, you were supposed to cut this, I think, and you forgot yeah. or something. Yeah. Right. As we were transitioning from one window to the next or something. But Well, like, before we, did, before we started the show, I was telling you guys that just so we have a talking point, I watched Unsane instead of Tenebrae, and um, that scene in particular was cut to shit, dude. Like, it's like, as soon as it passes the one girl's window, it cuts, and then you're at the other girl's window. And that's the, that's the scene. It's just ridiculous. What did they use for, like, a a score or anything? Did they use anything? They had had the main Tenebrae theme during that point. Yeah, it's just, like, uh, chopped up, right? It's just, it's the weirdest cut of a movie I've ever seen because it's not for nudity. It's not for gore. And it doesn't, it doesn't even feel like it's for time. Like what's the runtime of Tenebrae? An hour 40. This is an hour 31. Oh, wow. So it's like, yeah, no, 101 minutes. So it's not like a schizoid cut of like lizard in a woman's skin where that was just they cut out all the gore and everything. This is just no. There's still gore in it. The one, the big gore scene that did get cut was um, when the chick's arm gets cut off. They show okay. it getting cut off, and they show her screaming. And then the next shot is her laying on the kitchen floor, covered in blood. No blood spray. Right. No. I mean, you see the blood everywhere. Yeah. But um, they don't show the actual. No, but other than that, they show every hit, every stab, every... And they did that They did that with um, Phenomena, too. They cut um, that down to, a, a, to the Creepers version. There's a whole bunch of scenes in Phenomena um, that, you know... It, I don't know if it was just like they thought that the American audiences would have less patience for the longer scenes. Um, and certainly they did it with Deep Red. Um the thing about Deep Red was the American version, or the the Italian version, is almost two hours, or I think it is two hours, and the um, the American version of Deep Red has a lot of the scenes with uh, Mark Daly and um, the girl, the reporter, whatever her character's name is. They're talking and having these kind of weird, quirky relationships, and then there's a scene where um, Mark Daly goes to the house and starts looking around and looking for clues and they cut the heck out of that too on the in the in the uh, US version so I think well, a lot of this that one down 
Because like, those are the two things I have problems with in that movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I um I think maybe that the decisions were like you know let's chop these down and get them into running times. A lot of these films maybe were double features at drive-ins, and they wanted yeah. them to be at a, at a certain length so that people wouldn't you know so that people would stay for both shows or whatever. But that was uh, another thing that was weird because a lot of the stuff that you could see was obviously cut was middles of conversations were cut out. Yeah. Like yes. they'd be talking and then all of a sudden they're like way farther down the walkway and it's a like a closer shot kind of thing. Yep. It's so weird. But yeah. Anyway. Unsane, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that word doesn't even make sense. Is it? It's so unsane. Anyway. So I guess my other question for Eric was, um, you know, we get to the end. We've been talking about the double killer. Um, what did you think? Did you have it figured out, or um, were you kind of still on the fence? Um, as far as you know, I knew it. I knew it was definitely a different killer, just because it was a lot more brutal. Um, and maybe this is me being sexist, but I knew it was a man just because of that that reason you know the razor blade could have been a woman even just the stabbing of the knife into the gut could have been a woman but once it was an axe I'm like alright so it's, it's gotta be a man and there's only you know basically two men left the detective and Peter Neal right and with you know Neal being this horror author with you know weird I guess he, he likes to write weird stuff apparently and um, just I kind of had a, an inkling that it would have been him, and then when they, they showed him coming to the house, which I thought this was a great shot of his feet and the axe, and then panning up, um, I was kind of expecting to see his face. So when I did, it was it was interesting. I was excited to see how they were going to explain that uh, whole situation. And, you know, once I realized it was the affair had something to do with it, and he was using uh, the, the anchor guy as sort of a... Um, scapegoat in a way it also started to come together which I was happy with because a lot of the times when they explain things away it's almost like they come up with an ending first or you know it's everything seems kind of backwards and it doesn't make sense in the end um, I thought this one tied up together pretty well what I wasn't expecting to see and I don't know I suppose it's time to spoil it was was the the very end and how the fact that the, the razor that he used was a fake, and then right. alive, and I thought that was great. Um, that really, that really surprised me. After I felt like I was kind of like, oh well, I realized it was him a couple scenes ago. Kind of let down a little bit, um, but it was him. It was that was kind of exciting to see. Well, and I think that Argento probably took a few cues from the slasher genre in that you know it's not over yet kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. I love that scene where. Um, the detective is standing in front of him, and they framed it with the ears yes. exactly perfectly. And then he bends down to get the handkerchief, and you see Peter Neal behind him. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, that was the big mystery or the big twist was that the person who comes in that um, that Peter Neal hits with the axe, you think it's Anne, but it ends up being the detective instead. And then he's actually kind of taken by surprise as well. Um, and then... You know, I think the funniest part of the film for me is when the detective comes in and he gives you this one sentence 
uh, explanation about the maid and something else and something else. And I'm like, what? Can I rewind that again? I, you know, listen to it like three or four times. I'm like, who? who? You know, I still didn't understand what the hell we were talking about. But um, something about like th there was a scene towards the end where the maid even, came at the police station, right? Yeah, and she starts talking to the uh, to the to the inspector, the female inspector. Was it the TV guy's maid? No, it was. I think it was John Saxon's maid. Or did I get that wrong? Because she, because she, because he did something about. Wait, what was the guy's name? Um, oh, found out about the affair. Bulmer. Or whatever. Bulmer. His, his the character's name was Bulmer, and he says something about. And Bulmer's maid, something, something, something. So, um, yeah, Bulmer's. It's it's not in the um, it's not in the list of characters in the in the IMDb, but I thought that the maid was the person who came in and explained to the detectives that Balmer was having an affair with Jane, and that's how they kind of put two and two together. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah. And then the report from Interpol. Kind of handy to have. Yeah. Yeah. Those always. I mean, it's just like pieces where they figured out at the last minute that the dean, um, something happened to him when he lived in Arlington, and he changed his name. Here's something, Sergeant. He's changed his name. That uh, could be nothing, but let's check it out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clearly, two different movies, but still. <laughs> um, yeah. There's, there's like. It's weird, because like, when we talk about Argento, we're always talking about what a genius he is and all this stuff. And in this movie, there was obviously a lot of thought put into it. But when you think of it again, there's still so many holes. And like, I try not to be super picky, because I know how many Argento files there are who listen to this show. But... Um, what was the deal with Jane? Like, she followed him to Rome to be with the dude she was having an affair with. What was she calling yeah. to apologize for? It didn't make any. It that? didn't make any sense. Like, first of all, she's in the airport, and she's with some other woman. And who went into the bag? Was it the woman or was it Jane? And then, um. Well, it had to have been the other woman, right? Because yeah, Jane Jane calls him to talk to him at the airport, and then was it even planned that somebody was going to take his bag, or was it just like, hey, the opportunity? Well, it would have to be one of those things, like, well, he always leaves his bag when he answers the phone, <laughs> right? Like, who would ever plan that? <laughs> so they just they kind of they kind of spontaneously took the bag and decided to smash everything to pieces. And then give it back to him, but that was the or other. Did he have no? Because he wasn't crazy yet, or he hadn't lost his shit yet. Right, he hadn't. He hadn't moved over. Well, and and again, you know, the question of whether he's truly crazy or not. I mean, it, he's definitely has problems, but if he's truly incapable, if he's truly incapable of distinguishing right right from wrong, then that's one thing. But clearly, he was calculated enough to say, I'm going to use this other killer 
as an excuse to bump off my agent and my ex-wife or my ex-girlfriend or whoever she was. But you have a, I mean, the question is good. Like, so he gets a call from her and says, um, I, you know, I want you back or why haven't you called me? And then he flies to Rome and then she flies to Rome. But meanwhile, the whole time she's with the agent anyway. Yeah. So why does she even care? And then on top of that, like, if he was trying to make it look like the other killed killer was killing, why did he kill the other killer? Uh, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> if he was trying to like do this under the guise of the killer who's yeah. been killing people, why did, kill why did he kill the killer? Was he why did he... sloppy? I don't know. It was into me and with he would hit him on the back of the head with the rock. <laughs> he hit himself, right? Well, is that what you're supposed to believe? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Getting back to the the Jane having the affair thing, I, that, I, I did want to bring that up because I wrote down that I thought, oh great, this is going to turn into another. You know, money is the motive, and that they're maybe behind hiring a killer because, you know, Peter even says at one point, I need to leave. I need to get out of this country. And the agent, John Saxon, says, no, you got to stay. This is a million-dollar deal. We're going to send you away to this secluded home. And I'm like, well, they're, they're going to get him to this house, and they're going to be able to kill him, and no one's going to be able to you know, catch them because it's, they're, they're sending him away. Right. So I, I don't know if that was an attempt at misdirection, and it worked in my instance. Uh, maybe for you guys it didn't, so it ended up just becoming a huge plot hole. Um, I guess that's, that's my explanation of what I, I would think is why that happened. And then what did she say when she came out of the room? He's like, it'll be soon, baby, I promise. Yeah. Like, like what? This. What would be soon? Was he hoping that he got killed by the killer? Maybe. It's like, uh, you know, they want a million yeah. dollar deal. Or maybe they were just, maybe uh, they were just waiting until a certain, a certain milestone to go public with their, you know, relationship. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, no. It, clearly, I mean, Creep has a good point in that, yeah. you know, they, they stop. And if she was there, why would he have to go meet her for lunch? <laughs> I don't know if that was later or not, but I, I do think that that scene itself was very kind of, you know, maybe this is an Argentophile thing of me to say, but it just felt like something that was very um, trademark of him to do was sitting in this, this town square out in the open with a bunch of people around yet he's still vulnerable you know he's, he's looking all around and seeing different things like this woman is getting yelled at by her boyfriend Right. what's going on there and it's like something's going to happen something's going to come out of here that's going to be and he's going to end up dead and sure enough he's stabbed right in the middle of the right out in the she, open in public when that chick's walking up to him and she's like this or whatever She's like she doesn't upset. look like a chick. She looks like a scary dude in a dress. Like, yeah. Do you think? I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I like, think I got that. I got that kind of feeling too. It's kind of it's, it's kind of funny. But do you think you saw what you really thought you saw? Like that's what, that's what I'm saying. Did he's like, <laughs> oh, okay, we're gonna fuck around with people's shit here. Yeah. Let's get a scary looking dude, put him in a dress, and have him be all. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you question everything. Well, now, I don't want to get too, you know, analytical here, but if you compare that scene late. to the scene in Four Flies, 
where the maid goes out to confront the killer in the park. Um, in, in that scene, the maid is by herself. It's kind of scary. There's a couple that are making out on the bench, but eventually they go away, and it gets darker and darker, and she's more and more secluded and more and more solitude, but it's the same idea. It's a public space. It's a park. Um, and kind of contrast or juxtapose that scene with this one in Tenebrae where it's the complete opposite. Instead of having the couple who are um, who are making out on the bench, they're mad at each other and yelling at each other, and there's plenty of people, and there's kids that are kicking balls around, and that... Um, I think that happened um, in the beginning of Four Flies, where the credits are rolling. Yeah. Some somebody kicks the ball, but I mean, um, I, I don't know. You know, obviously, you know, Argento is very, very uh, self-referential, self-referential, but I think that was kind of like a, you know, the new version of, you know, the scary alone in the park kind of thing, where you're not really alone. It's just like no one's paying attention to you. Yeah. So you're still alone, kind of thing. But honestly, he just ripped that off a of case of the bloody iris, <laughs> right? Because that chick getting stabbed in broad daylight in the middle of the sidewalk. Yeah, that's true. So, oh, excuse me. But you never had that feeling of like, you know, there's a lot of what's going on around her. Something's something bound to happen here. I mean, maybe a little well, bit. Well, no, because Argento's a voyeur. Argento, yeah. like, I don't mean to like be super critical but argento is a fucking super closet pervert oh yeah like we've, we've been over this and yeah. he likes to watch people and he gets off on it and so having john saxon sitting in like a smorgasbord of eye candy where he could just like watch everything that's going on and then still not see his own death yeah. you know right um love you dario <laughs> and um, I think we should talk about that whole thing. Like the idea of this story came about from a fan blaming him for him going crazy and shit and sending him death threats and phone calls and all this other shit. So, but like when you watch Tenebrae compared to his other Jali, you could see uh, maturity and just how he's dealing with it. Everything from uh, Peter Neal being like an older, wiser... I mean, t look at him, look at Peter Neal, and then look at um, Sam, or whatever his name was, from Bird. You right. know, they're both writers, but like one is obviously a lot further along older wiser and right. sam's like still he's still writing articles about the preservation of rare birds yeah i was about to say vaginas because i got confused <laughs> with my book so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> crystal yeah. pubist yeah 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 <laughs> so funny. i don't know but it's just it's it's you see so much of him and i'm sure you see a lot of other people in their work but I don't think it's been brought up as much or is talked about or thought about as it is with Argento. Like, he's such an open book when it comes to his subject matters and stuff. Right. I mean, he, you know, he put his own daughter in a rape scene. So, I mean, you know, clearly he's got issues. 
you know, there's there's no doubt about it. And and maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's like, well, you know, we're Italians and we're 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 above this whole thing where we, you know, confuse our real life with our professional art life. And so maybe it's it's jokes on us, but I don't know. I, I don't think I could ever put my own daughter in a rape scene if I was a filmmaker. No. No. But so anyway, yeah, Tenebrae. Yeah. I guess what else we got? One one thing I don't know if we're we're, we're wrapping up things here or not, but um, so maybe this isn't the best thing to end on, but um, something I saw in this movie that I don't see a lot in Jello movies. Maybe this was because it's in 1982 or 83, and it's kind of being influenced more by slashers and you know people getting chased by that stalk and slash killer in the dark. But everything starting from when the the uh, the girl was being chased by the dog uh, managed to jump over that fence, which is just the scariest thing ever to me for some reason. And then the dog chasing her yeah. up in the house, and then she realizes it's the killer's house. She sees all these artifacts around, and it's like, get, you know, get that shit and get out of there. You're overstaying your welcome. Something's gonna happen here. Um, that's the first time I actually felt that tension. Like, get out of there. Get out of. There. What are you doing? Yeah. And I don't get that a lot in like uh, Giallo movies, and I don't know if that's off-putting to people who. I know there's there's kind of that uh, Venn diagram of people who only love Jalo movies and people who love slashers, and then there's uh, people that are kind of in the middle. They can, they like both, and they like what they bring. But I know there's some people that just don't want any kind of slasher elements at all in their Jalo films, and I don't know if that's kind of off-putting. I just wanted to ask you guys about that. The only thing that was off-putting about that was that we don't even know what the fight was that made her get off the motorcycle. She decides she's going to fight a dog through a fence that could actually jump and climb and all sorts of other shit. Uh And then she fucking um, just happens to end up in the killer's backyard. Like, there's so many, like, just happened to. And he just (laughs) happened to leave the keys door. So she was able to get in. And so the next day or whatever... When the lawn's being mowed, <laughs> is that, that's not the killer. That's just some gardener, right? I think it's the killer mowing his own lawn. Because like, the next thing is like, oh, we found the body. So like I, I thought it was like a... Yeah, it seems kind of boom, boom. I just yeah. I just thought, I mean, my take on it was, you know, he killed her. It, it's one of those, like, it's one of those morning after kind of things. Like, oh, all this passional, passionate murdering happened the night before. And I killed her, I hit her with the axe, and then I just left her body out there and I went to bed because I had enough for the night and I was drunk or whatever. And then the next morning you wake up and you gotta clean up. After the party. You gotta ride your riding mower over everything and then you find the body. But, uh, and and little known, not little known, but interesting um, side note is that the guy riding or driving the motorcycle was Michel Suave. The guy who directed um, Stage Fright and uh, some of the other films. That's the pop up, doesn't he? He does. He does. But I think so he could pop a wheelie on a motorcycle, huh? <laughs> I I think that um, Eric has a, uh, an interesting point because I I tend to agree. I think that there are a few jolly where there are a few scenes that are suspenseful, suspenseful. But in general, slashers typically are much more nail biting. 
You know, the killer's coming after you. Get out of there. Get out of there. And Tenebrae was definitely like that. I think there were scenes in Torso that were definitely like that as well. And again, both uh, Torso is 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 very much um, categorized as a hybrid slasher uh, giallo. So I mean, you know, some of uh, Argento's other films, and maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's a time time span thing you know maybe if you were watching bird with the crystal plumage in 1969 or 1970 you would find some of the scenes to be more suspenseful than they are now because you know we've got an additional like 30 40 years worth of movies made past that one that we've become used to but um i think in general it, it's true that i think the the suspense uh it only can go so far in a giallo um which is interesting too, because in a giallo you don't know who the killer is. You're only seeing hands a lot of times, and maybe that's why it's not so suspenseful. Like in a Friday the Thirteenth film, I see, you know, or in, in Halloween, well, I see the shape. Birthday to me, you know, you don't know who's killing everybody, and it's right. still suspenseful. In a good episode of Murder She Wrote, you don't know who's killing everybody, yeah. and it's suspenseful. But it's just oh. kind of amped. I know what Chris is saying. It's just kind of amped up when... I mean, you don't necessarily no, see the... It's a monster kind like of When thing. you see the shape coming after, you know, uh-huh. Jimmy Lee Curtis, or when you see, um, you know, in, like, Friday the 13th Part 2, when you see um, Jason, I think in, in that film, he just has a bag over his head, and he's coming after the girl, and she's hiding in his little shack, and you see him coming through the window, like, he's out, you know, he's heading up there. It's it's pretty frightening. You know, yeah, uh, and I you don't really get that sort of heightened nail biting kind of suspense in most Jalo, but you definitely get it in this one, and especially in that scene. I thought that scene was really um, well done, um, even though you know you have to suspend a lot of disbelief about, oh, yeah. you know, why did she stop there? How come she jumped over that fence and the dog and everything else? But then she ended up with, you know, and that and the 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 whole thing about uh, the killer just happened to leave his keys dangling in the key thing and that's the only reason why he went back because if he had brought his keys with him he would have picked up the next victim um or and killed the next victim he was planning on going out and getting a hooker i think and um did anybody think that the girl did anybody think that the, the girl who got killed um with the uh so you had the two girls that got killed together one of them was the the straight haired reporter who was who had yeah. some sort of a family connection with Peter Neal, and then the other girl was more like an Italian, um, full-figured girl. It looked like the same girl was walking around in the hooker alley, yeah. but they were. I, I mean, thought it was the same girl. girl. She was already dead, but yeah. And so you know he would have picked somebody up and done something, but instead he came back because he left his keys and finds her there, and she's trying to stuff all the photos into her skirt. If you've got enough photos there, just get it. But, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just so unbelievable that it's almost kind of like real life. Like, I don't know, movies but seem it's to like be... If you found, like, that the person whose house you're at is killing all these people, <laughs> would you go inside the house then and try to use the phone? Right. Or would you get the fuck out of there? Well, didn't the dog come back again? Is that Wasn't that the issue? The dog is what scared her in there, I thought, in the first place. And then, and, then she, and then she found the stuff, and then she... 
What? Well, yeah, it's kind of. I guess maybe she's being dumb. Like she found the pictures, but she spent all that time folding every single piece of paper up and stuffing it in her skirt pocket. And well, and then when she finally sees the killer, she says, "Please help me." Like she doesn't. She still doesn't realize that it's him. Yeah. That he's gonna kill her. And she, there's a scene where at the very end when the music ends and she walks up the steps into the main living room area to go use the phone, she doesn't look like she's scared. She just comes up the steps and she's kind of got a half smile on her face and she goes to, to grab the phone and then he comes in and says, spy. Idiot. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she... when you think of all the shit she just went through, like, this is <laughs> right. actually, like, okay, hop this fence. This dog's going to bite the shit out of you. Okay, run over here. This dog's going to bite the shit out of you. Okay, now run through here. This guy's going to chase you and beat you and fucking stab you. <laughs> oh, man. She had a rough like night. A good day's work. Yeah, yeah, really. But that, I mean, that is one of the only scenes. We talked a lot about how everything was kind of reversed and how it was all lit up really well. And this was one of the only ones that was dark. So maybe that's why it was a little intensified. Yeah. Too. Well, and and the end was as was mostly dark, and the, the the rain was was going on like crazy throughout the most of the end. But yeah, I, I'm sure that you could probably analyze it to death and say, well, it was light when these things were happening, and it was dark when these other things were happening, and whether or not that was done intentionally or not was you know, remains to be seen. But I don't know. I um, I, I have a, in, an interesting history with the film. Um, because again, you know, I had tried in my, um, in my teens to find as many Argento films as I could, because I was, uh, I was just mystified by the idea of this guy. And, you know, I saw Bird with the Crystal Plumage and I wasn't really that impressed with it. And people, uh, you know, I had read in Fangoria and in some of these other horror books about how great Argento was and... At that particular time, opera, I think, was being made. And so there was all these pictures of the eyes with the needles under them. And I'm like, wow, that's a really cool image. And there's got to be some other cool Dario Argento stuff. And Suspiria was considered to be his greatest film. And um, so I tried to get a hold of Tenebrae. And I had a girlfriend at the time. Uh, and, you know, when I was in college, I had finally found a copy of this film called Tenebrae, but I knew it was called Unsane. So we went to this video rental place and got the copy of Unsane and brought it back to her dorm and we watched it. And I think I ended up falling asleep between um, somewhere between the, 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 the murder in the, uh, in, in the town square of Bulmer of the agent and um the, the, the reveal of Peter Neal and uh, I was like what did I miss you know what what the fuck now all of a sudden he's the killer I thought he was the detective and so I had to watch it again so it was kind of spoiled for me because I was like you know I was in college and I had probably had too much to drink and too much to smoke and fell asleep before the movie was over um, but then when they released it on um, they released it on Laserdisc and I had never seen an uncut copy of it until the Laserdisc came out and uh, all these extra scenes, like they just blew my mind because I had, I had only seen the unsane copy, which is weird because uh, creep, you did the opposite. You saw the fully uncut version, then you watched the yeah. censored version. So, <clears throat> but I, but the music always, always stuck in my head as one of the best um, Argento soundtracks. It's just, yeah. um, 
It's just got such a cool vibe. It, it's very catchy, but it's it's very 80s. It's not like it's not like the music that you get from Deep Red or from Suspiria, which is more of that prog rock kind of thing. This is all just like synthesizer, 80s kind of uh, ambient kind of music. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, it, it's it's again, it's one of those things where you know uh, we talk about Jalo, and we talk about how integral to the film the soundtracks are whereas when you compare it to most other movies or horror movies you know the soundtracks aren't really that front and center like you don't have you know academy award-winning Ennio Morricone conducting full orchestras for a giallo I mean that's what you have you don't have that equivalent in Friday the 13th or maybe you do I don't know I mean, it just wasn't that wasn't that um wasn't that popular but again you know with Argento even going as far as 1982 he did something interesting where you can't really think of Tenebrae and the film and the visuals in the film without remembering the way that the soundtrack sounds at the same time and there's no there's not a lot of like ambient kind of mood music going on in Tenebrae it's the same thing with Suspiria and Deep Red it's it's like songs it's like actual song compositions and and musical motifs that are that are kind of repeating during a lot of these scenes as opposed to um, in some of earlier Argento films Morricone did some some stuff where it was basically just you know atonal violins or some other um, you know kinds of weird you know noise type things to just give you that suspense feeling through the music so it's uh it, it's just it's just really interesting i think if i had to pick a top five of, of giallo or jolly i mean tenebrae is in the top five for sure it might be number yeah. two it might be number one or number two depending on how i feel for the day it <clears throat> definitely the, switches this around is first, this is the first uh giallo film i ever saw but i didn't realize that it was a giallo film when i saw it mm. Strip Nude was the first one I saw when I knew what I was looking at. Right. But um, this was just me wanting to watch a horror movie and thought that it was going to be more of a slasher kind of thing, which it had its elements, which we hit. But um, so, but the thing that got me on this movie was the score. And I yep. watched it over and over again because of the music. Yeah. And then I ended up falling in love with the movie based on the music that I was hearing. Yeah. Interesting. So that, that's my two cents about it. Eric, did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Uh, the the music in the movie? Oh. I mean, this, this was your, your Tenebrae cherry popping. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was a big event. My quinceanera Tenebrae celebration... Is that, if I could throw in real quickly about the music, um, since we all have our kind of music stories with this movie, it's kind of funny that um, like back in 2006 or 2007, ages before I even knew what a Jello film was, that makes you all feel old out there. Um, I was listening to this band called Justice. They kind of do like yeah, electro rock stuff like that. They have this song called Phantom, which. Once I got, once I watched Tenebrae, I'm like, oh, it was just pissing me off why I couldn't remember why I heard that song before, even though I'd never seen the movie, never heard the soundtrack before, and I realized that Justice had sampled the song and like made it more, I don't know, like 
electrified dance yeah. dance yeah. rocket. So, huh. And it was like, I always, I always kind of enjoy when like I think a song is original and then I realize it was sampled later on, and then I always end up liking the original better than the the sampled version. Right. I felt the same way with MC Hammer's Prey and Prince's When the <laughs> Broke my heart. Can't yeah. touch this. So that. Well, uh, and I was just going to say something interesting is that if you watch Unsane, when the credits roll, there's a completely different piece of music that plays that was never in the original version. And if you go to the. I think it's either the DVD copy or maybe even the Laserdisc copy. If you listen to the commentary track, um, yeah. they have Argento on the commentary track and they play the music from Unsane at the end uh, over top of the film to just play a joke on Dario. And uh, he, he has some sort of a reaction to it. Like, hey, wait a minute. What are you guys playing? This isn't the music for the film. Where did this music come from? He was pretty <laughs> pissed, if I recall. Was he? <laughs> yeah. Um, but overall, my, my view on the film, and maybe it was a little, um, I guess, influenced by when I watched it. I actually watched it on Friday the 13th. Oh. I was kind of just sick of watching Jason movies. I don't know. I was about to put one in, and I'm just like, you know, what? I've seen all these so many times. I'm gonna throw in. I'll, I'll throw in Tenebrae today. And so now I've I've got this attachment where it's like I almost enjoyed it a lot more than if I had probably put in a Friday Thirteenth movie. As much as I love those ones and how it was kind of a tradition to just watch one, it was almost a lot, a lot more involved and more invested in this movie because it was kind of like that. That spooky, eerie feeling of it being a Friday the 13th for so many years watching scary movies. And so it was just amped up a little bit more. And the fact that it was still 80s is kind of, it kind of spoke to me too. Um, that's just my wheelhouse. I, I enjoy all the 70s stuff we go through, but just really like this one and Profumo and, and movies like that from that decade. Oh, wait, did I say Profumo? I'm sorry. <laughs> that, one, that one's got a charm. Um, but yeah, so I just really, I mean, they still had the, still had the detective wearing a lavender suit in this one, so it's still a little bit 70s chic, but for the most part, it was just, I just liked the aesthetic of the whole thing and the, the music, and I just thought it was really well-rounded and, and, um, you know, at an hour and 40 minutes, it just felt nice and, uh, robust of a film, whereas, like, opera, I felt it was kind of forgettable, yeah. um, just a, so I was kind of like I know you you love this movie I'm like there has to be a reason why Chris loves this movie so much and, and Creep even likes it too and he, he doesn't necessarily like Argento that much this is Argento's last good movie yeah so, so it was a little bit hyped up and I was a little bit concerned about that but I think it followed through and I think I, I, think I got a, a winner with this one I was really worried after the last show when we were done I'm like me and Chris way oversold that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So if if we're gonna stick with the cherry popping theme, um, lived up to the hype, I was satisfied. Yay! All right. The girth and the length <laughs> descriptions were accurate. That's good. That's better uh, than most cherry popping stories I've heard. So yeah. That's everything I dreamed it would be more creep. Usually not that pleasurable. You still didn't send me flowers after I watched it, though. <laughs> I'm not a flower guy. 
<laughs> I, need, I need to be a better flower guy, I think. I think so. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, Eric uh, kind of slightly hinted at um, 80s, basically, the style of, of the film being from the 80s. Uh, we didn't really talk about it too much. We talked more about, um, I guess, the, the set design and the lines and the reflections in the glass and stuff. But um, the um, the there was a lot of high waisted pants. It was disgusting. <laughs> there is a blog. I wish I could remember. Is it? Oh, it's Rachel Rachel Nisbet. Um, has a blog called Hypnotic Crescendos. We talked about it last time. Yeah. She has a really good article on Tenebrae, uh, the fashion aspect and the style aspect on Tenebrae. She analyzes a lot of the scenes uh, for its color palettes and the fashion, and uh, it's a really interesting article. So if you're interested in, you know, how the um, how the film uh, works at that particular level. Uh, I recommend uh, taking a look at that article. It's pretty lengthy, which is good. It's 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 awesome that somebody decided to spend that much time thinking about um, the visual and the style of it. Uh, besides creep, is, of course. So, what does she say about velour sports jackets? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It, it is mentioned that um, the only one character in the film who isn't wearing a suit is Johnny. As far as the uh, as far as male characters are concerned, and he's got that um, pastel diamond sweater um, that he wears through most of the film, uh, and then of course there's that scene where the two like um, super muscular dudes are playing. Uh, oh my god, that was video so games with the, with the high pants and stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, there's. There, there's a there's a lot of emphasis on <clears throat> what the uh, a lot more emphasis on what the women are wearing I guess in this than the men are wearing but the the colors palettes are very like pastel yeah. lots of pinks and uh, teals and um, a lot of white too shrimp colored stuff and a lot of white yeah definitely speaking of losing my virginity there was a lot of uh, Johnny Moose Knuckle in this movie. I don't know if you guys noticed it as much as I did, but it was really assaulting me. I noticed it a couple times. Okay. That's me in the corner. It wasn't very impressive. For me. <laughs> no. But it's no, just not at all. No. And he was wearing some, like, sky blue pants that were a little too tight. Mm. <laughs> I was like, dude, come on. And this is the first time I think when I watched it, I realized he wasn't the guy on the motorcycle. You thought he was a motorcycle dude? Yeah, because he leaves with that chick out of uh -huh. the room, and then the next scene is the girl on a motorcycle with some guy. Some other dude. So I always thought, yeah, some fucking stage fright motherfucker. Yeah, um, yeah I that, always that was a guy. Like but, they uh, le they left the hotel together, but then when they went outside, she's getting on the motorcycle. It's not Johnny's motorcycle, right? It's the other guy. Yeah. Right. So that was weird. But um, now another thing that we didn't talk about at all here was um, uh, Bava Junior and 
stage fright guy worked on this movie and then from this movie went on and made their own movies. Right. And Little Bava made Blade in the Dark and the other guy, what movie, did, was Stage Fright the first one he did stage, or did he do one yeah. before that? Yep. No, it was Stage Fright. But I thought <clears throat> Bava did a film before, Bava did a film before Blade in the Dark. It was called Macabre, maybe. Oh, okay. But he worked on this, and then, because I thought when we did Blade in the Dark, he was talking about how Tenebrae was a big influence, and working on it was a big influence on Blade in the Dark. Or am I remembering that wrong? Well, yeah, Blade in the Dark is so similar to, um, really, really looks and feels a lot like Tenebrae. As far as uh, as far as similarities go, and his first film came out actually before Tenebrae, so I think, you okay. know, if you're talking about direct influence, then for sure, then Blade in the Dark was the one that was influenced um, by Tenebrae. Was Macabre more influenced by like his daddy? I don't know. I've never seen it, <laughs> but it's his. Uh, okay. But yeah, his, I'm a really big fan of Suave. Um, I, I really like Age Fright. I really like The Church. Those are some of the first Italian movies I'd seen. So, kind of doing like a roundabout and coming back to the 80s with with those guys working together. And I know Suave was in, in Blade in the Dark as well. It's like he had like a bit part in that one. Yeah, he was so, the um, he was the guy who rented out the place, right? To yeah. The, to the other guy. Yeah. So just yeah, seeing kind of like this the second generation, it was kind of unfortunate that they didn't do a lot more with that style of film it just kind of died out after like the demons run yeah and it's funny to see you know um lamberto he kind of went in one direction and suave kind of went in a different one like lamberto i think ended up being a tv director um eventually he did the first two demons films and i forget what else but suave did a couple of weird films besides uh, stage fright the church and uh sect and then he did that film with Rupert Everett which was kind of um, really hard to categorize or, or, or classify because it really was a weird Italian horror movie but it had a lot of kind of I don't know art art film credit to it and it, it was kind of a little bit more of a legitimate I hate saying legitimate because I think all these films are legitimate but I think it had a mainstream audience that Cemetery Man movie i don't know if you guys have ever seen it but um it's it's really polished it's a very polished film not like um the sect or the church or any of the other movies that came out in the mid 80s by these guys and i don't know what uh what suave ended up doing he probably ended up doing tv as well yeah because i think that's what they all end up doing over there yeah didn't even... hey chris hey what um, do you ever sit on that ball in the background to work on your core? <laughs> uh, if you'd see my core, you'd know the answer. Uh, no, it, it, just an aside, if you, you may have noticed since the last time that this room is much cleaner. Um, there used to be piles and piles and piles of boxes behind me, and um, I'm really a shit because I shouldn't be broadcasting video from a room that looks like a pigsty um but now i'm not so we had a big um we had a big old spring cleanup in november this weekend and uh the only thing left in here is the exercise ball which 
is is about 25% deflated. So if you sat on it, yeah, you'd probably fall little, right off of it. Little, yeah. Yeah. So. I also have. Bad. I also well, have one of those. Um, I have one of those ac acupuncture uh, things. I don't know if you can see it. It's right. It's right in the corner there. It's folded in half. It's got these weird little plastic circles that have spikes, and you're supposed to lay on your back on it, kind of like the the guy who can lay on the bed of nails kind of thing. That sounds awful. It's supposed to be for um, for pain relief, which is weird because it's painful. You shouldn't you shouldn't buy stuff you see on TV at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Just go to bed. I turned into full cheap torture devices. Yeah, I have uh, a Ron Pope Peel food dehydrator and uh, a Jack Lane juicer. Yeah, we got rid of that at the yard sale. You have the magic bullet? No. Well, I'm talking about that really late. Oh, I, mean, uh, yeah. I have the one. magic bullet. I bet. And I also have the pancake flipper, and that thing's a piece <laughs> of shit. doesn't even work. <laughs> Sends batter all out the sides. Ridiculous. <laughs> so Tenebrae. Right. Tenebrae. So yeah, super good movie. Everyone should watch it. And that's that. You know, there's a reason why our listeners picked it for one of the movies we had to do. They're smart. They're smart. And next time, I get to do some Edwidge, and that's what's important here. Yeah. True enough. So Are you gonna share any of her? No. No. Not at all. <laughs> I thought after forty eight episodes we had something. You're gonna no. take all for yourself. <laughs> Not when it comes to a fennec. Okay. And um that fox is mine. So anyway, on the next episode we'll be doing the strange vice of Miss Ward. Or is it Blade of the Ripper? Blade of the Ripper. Or next. Next with an exclamation point. So Such next we'll be doing next. Next yeah. we'll be next. Alright, let's there just we go. Alright. The film um, that turns everyone into an Edwidge fan, if you if you aren't already. Yeah. You Cretans. It's going to yeah. be sad to see her go, but... I love to watch um, her leave. Yeah, but I love to watch her leave. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have... That, would, would that be the last Edwidge film that we haven't covered yet? It would be. Oh, wow. Well, that's yeah. good. It's what happens when you hit 50. <laughs> she looked good at 50, so... Oh, yeah. I'm not talking about her. No, I didn't. I'm talking about us at 50. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Gotta get on that exercise ball. Yeah. <laughs> Let's work on our cores, guys. Yeah. We have two weeks. <laughs> Not spring chickens anymore. All right. So, um, I guess that's it. So, uh, until next time, everybody. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Yay.